Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon. And my show, as always, are the stories we live by. And today I'm going to change the direction of my show, and I may do a whole series of shows, because I'm not sure that the topic I'm going to talk about today can really be done in one hour. Um, and uh, I don't even want it to go an hour. Nobody can listen to me babble on and talk for an hour. Uh, I find a half hour is is Plenty, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, what stimulated my thinking on this show was a tweet. Uh, I, I follow Twitter. I follow some people, and some people follow me. And one of the people who I didn't even realize until I read this and I read saw who it was, this was somebody already following me, a woman, And she writes the following in a tweet. I had so many dreams. I had so many things I wanted to do. I was told I needed to wait for the right cocktail of meds so I could be balanced. Days turned into months and years. 20 years gone, never got to start my life. Uh, I could weep for that. A life stolen. Millions of lives being stolen. This is a machine, the medical model of psychiatry, adopted as the framing by psychologists and social workers, uh, 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 certain nurses, to show people or to tell people that when they're in psychological trouble, they have an illness, a mental illness. And there's so much to unpack here because that's a lie. There can't be anything called a mental illness. As I've said so many times, if it can be shown that there is a neurological or chemical or biological problem that causes people to be so sad and depressed that they can't get out of bed, or that they're so anxious that they shake and, and, and they're terrified 20 hours out of 24 hours. Or that they make up stories that other people think are crazy, which are then called delusions. Or that they hear voices or see things that other people can't see. There are these would be called an anxiety disorder, a depressive disorder, a psychosis, perhaps schizophrenia. There are now 500 plus of these terms. And to accept that you have a mental illness is to have your life robbed. And I want to explain why. Because there are many ways a person can have their life robbed. Many ways in which the story that they live their life by contains elements that are invisible to them that trap them into this kind of a system, which is really uh, 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 to accept that you're mentally ill and you're waiting for the right cocktail of drugs is really 
that you're living your life as a consumer of the drug industry. You're not a person, you're a consumer. You're part of a market. And you're waiting for something that's never going to happen. And I want to explain why and put it in the larger picture of why so many people get trapped in this kind of a system or in systems like it. But how to get out of it? Because if you can analyze your own story, or if you could find a professional that will help you analyze your own story, you can put your finger on certain elements, certain key elements within your view of the truth and your moral system that, if accepted, will create problems because the thing you'll do to get out of your psychological pain will only make things worse. The symptoms that are referred to as mental illness are very often attempts by people to deal with some kind of inner pain that causes more pain. And all of this has to be unpacked. Where do I start? We all live by a story. And again, the story helps us explain the world, how to deal with the world, but also judge the world. I want to start with the word sick. When I taught, this is where I used to start trying to help my students understand the myth of mental illness. And the myth of mental illness was originally a a term used by a wonderful psychiatrist named Thomas Zoss, um, who said that unless you could be shown that there's a biological problem underlying the anxiety or the crazy stories or the depression, they're not illnesses. They're problems in living. So he wasn't denying that problems don't exist. They do. But from my point of view, they're psychological problems. And if, in fact, they are, can be proven to be shown that there's an underlying medical problem, then they're not mental problems. They're normal medical problems, and they should be treated by neurologists, endocrinologists, and others who work in real medicine. 94% of all the psychotherapy being performed in this country and and, and in the civilized world where psychotherapy is a big business and part of an industry, 94% are by people who never went to medical school. How could I be treating a sickness or an illness if I didn't have a medical degree? It's something you yourself have to ask. If you've been diagnosed as this young lady, what, 20 years in, I I imagine this started in childhood. I imagine, because I contacted this person, by the way. I asked her to be on the show with me, but she couldn't make it this time. Uh, I'm going to try to convince her and people who hear this to come on the show and talk about the problems that originally ended up getting them diagnosed as mentally ill or mentally sick, because the word sick is appropriate here. So I'd say to my students, on a piece of paper, write the word sick twice. 
But on one, put it in quotations. So the word sick now in quotations is a metaphor for sick. And we have to examine what the metaphor might be about. All right? You're listening to the news, and it says there's, the economy is a sick economy right now. Okay? Which word, without quotes or with quotes, would you point to? Right? If you're doing this or thinking about it, it would be with quotes. Economies don't literally get sick. There are problems in business. People aren't buying. People aren't selling. Uh, uh, the worth of products goes up too much or goes down too much. Right? But it's not sick that we call a doctor for the economy to be helped. We call economists. We hope that a rational plan to fix the economy and people will follow that plan. And then we can end up with a better economy. And hopefully the politicians, who are the assholes of the world much of the time, won't screw things up or make them worse than they already are. Right? You're at a party. And somebody starts telling really offensive jokes. People find it offensive. And finally someone says... That joke is sick. It shouldn't be told at this party. Right? A sick joke, with or without quotation marks. Is it a literal sickness? No. We mean in, in a moral sense. It's sick in a moral sense. It shouldn't be told in public. Maybe it shouldn't be told at all. Maybe it offends people on their religion or offends people on their skin color or offends people by their nationality. Right? You don't call a doctor. On the other hand, all of a sudden, somebody might say to the joke teller, you're a sick guy and you should see a psychiatrist. You should see a doctor. And now we have something very interesting. A person who tells a sick joke now moves from sick in quotation marks to needing a medical care? Tell me how that makes sense. He told a joke that was seen as not moral, and now he's being told he has an illness. In fact, he may even be told, you're mentally ill for telling jokes like this. See a doctor makes no sense, because it doesn't make sense. Right? A moral problem, and most of the behaviors that get you into trouble are being judged morally. Behavior can only be judged morally if it's just a behavior, if it has a purpose, if you're doing something. Telling jokes that offend people is a doing something. Making up a story that nobody believes is true is a doing something. Seeing things that aren't there is something that's being done. Getting into bed and not getting out is something that's being done. And it's being done for psychological reasons, for how you think and how you feel. And there really is a trouble here. But it doesn't require a real doctor. 
And as I've said, 95% of the time, if you go for help for your mental illness, you will be diagnosed mentally ill by someone who is not a physician and will not treat you in any way medically, but will talk to you about your problem, maybe give advice, maybe help you clarify some of the life conditions that brought you to this point. Maybe you'll help learn some new skills to deal with people so you don't end up being rejected or hurt. Maybe you'll think through some of the beliefs that keep you in bed. And I don't want to go into those specifically. I will do that. I have done that in many shows, what anxiety is and what depression is, set of beliefs and the emotions that go with it. Okay, I said it. I got to do it. If you're really depressed, it's because you believe you are defective. You believe the world is a cruel and awful place. You believe there's nothing you can do anything about it. It's hopeless and you're helpless. And under those conditions, getting in bed and not getting out makes complete sense. Why somebody is in that condition is another story. But once it's a moral judgment, you should get out of bed, you should go to work, you should pick up your life, and you're not, so you're sick, No, it's still a moral judgment. It's what you should do or shouldn't do. And now you're getting into a real trap here. When I first came into the field, the cure for all of this was some form of psychotherapy, either based on the ideas of behaviorism, you were conditioned to be this way, you'd be reconditioned, or in the direction I went, Not because I chose it, but because A, it made sense, and B, that's what my opportunities were about, related to psychoanalysis. We analyze the story. You tell a story, I listen, questions are asked, and through a process, a new understanding may come about. And I had all kinds of criticisms about how psychoanalysis worked, but not about the method. I still, that, from all 50 years of my life, I work with people that way, and I became a teacher that way, because as I'm going to suggest, the best therapy is going back to school, learning something new, reading books, becoming active on your own behalf. Okay. The psychological reasons were the ones that were seen to be the problem. The problem is that the minute I say you're sick or mentally ill, it's not now a problem that grew out of what's between you and the people in your life, how you were treated or how you treated them or both. It's in you. You are now the problem in one way or another. And you become the focus of the treatment rather than an understanding of the politics of your life of the economics of your life, of the social aspects of your life, all of which are involved in creating feelings that uh, you're hopeless or helpless or anxious and waiting for the next bomb to drop on you, for the next thing to fall on your head, the next misfortune that you feel you will not be able to deal with. But as the years came by, 
And more and more people, psychologists, got privileges to do therapy. And then social workers got privileges to do therapy. As the field grew, more and more people were using these terms. And the psychiatrists who started all of this, actually most of the psychiatrists were psychoanalysts, and, and really didn't use drugs all that much. They talked. They believed in, in analyzing the problem, right? helping people understand the problem through the, 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 the methods of psychoanalysis, of asking questions, of having a Socratic dialogue. Nothing medical in it. Suddenly, the idea came forward. It was a chemical imbalance in the brain that causes all of this. And I'm not going to go into the chemical imbalance theory. Uh, I recommend Chuck Ruby's book, Smoke and Mirrors. I've done interviews with him. I talk about that book because it's a wonderful, wonderful description of of taking apart the whole idea of the medical model. But I don't go into that because it's really not important. If it is a meta, if it's an underlying issue, you have to do something about that. And all of what I'm doing now is trying to teach you something. The difference between sickness or illness in quotes, which means it's metaphorical for something, either a problem in living or a real medical problem. And if it's a real medical problem, you need a real medical doctor. And most psychiatrists are not real medical doctors. They have a medical degree, but they're not practicing medicine. Now, let's step back and talk about chemical imbalances. Because however we debunk the myth of of the chemical imbalance by showing no one has ever demonstrated there is an imbalance, that doesn't mean tomorrow they won't come up with one. They'll really find one. And it really predicts the depression or the hallucinations or the delusions. At that point, I throw up my hands and say, you don't need me for therapy or a social worker for therapy. You need a real medical doctor who's going to treat the chemical imbalance. But that's not what's being done now. And because people are not educated as consumers and understanding this process, they do the wrong thing. They'll take these damn drugs that they've been given for 20 years and keep taking them, even though for 20 years the effects had nothing to do with help them get on with their life and realize the dreams that would have been, if they had pursued them, either ended up with meeting the, 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 the dream, fulfilling the dream, or being in a very different place and still feeling fulfilled and happy and fully alive. The drugs they give you now simply deaden you. So what do you do? Well, I go to the doctor if I feel sick. And if I'm sick, he either orders an x-ray or he does draws blood to follow up on some hypothesis he must have. But I also go to the doctor three times a year because I take two high blood pressure medicines and an anti-cholesterol medicine and a uh, proton pump inhibitor, which reduces my tendency to have heartburn, which I've had for 40, 50 years 
for a variety of reasons, some of which are emotional. And I come into the office a week before I see him, and they draw blood, and they run a panel. And the lady who sees me in, in, in my current doctor's office, his physician's, physician's assistant, says, do you want the results? And I say, of course. And she hands them to me. There's no secret here. And I put on my glasses and I peruse. And what I see is a, on the left is a whole series of chemical reactions and hormones that relate to my liver, my kidneys, my heart, all kinds of things. And as I look through them, there is a lower value and a higher value and a range between them. The lower value is the expected value of what would be necessary for me not to have the problem, which would be caused by having too little of this particular hormone related to my liver or my kidneys or my heart. And then there's an upper value. And this is the upper value that says, if I had too much of this particular chemical, if it was really imbalanced in that particular way, too much, I now have the potential of having other illnesses. And in fact, I may have them already because the symptoms that may have brought me in may be due to the fact I have too little or too much. My sugar is measured. Too little sugar, and I am hypoglycemic, and I have a whole bunch of symptoms. Too much sugar, and I have different symptoms with a potential of damage to my brain, my body, my heart, from something called diabetes, which is a real medical disorder. That's what I see. Now, the young woman or the woman who, who I'm talking about, whose life was taken away, never went into her doctor's office and said, what blood test did you use to determine my chemical imbalance? Were my balance based on too low or too high? What is the normal expected range of the chemicals in my brain such that if they were too low, I would have symptoms that are making me unhappy or making me do things that are getting me into trouble psychologically and socially? And what is the upper range? It's never been done. People don't do this. They take this on faith, not from their real medical doctor, but from the bullshit of psychiatry and those who are not psychiatrists who are embedded in this same model. So for those of you who are on these drugs, if you're happy with the effect, stay on them. But don't pretend they're medicines. They're just drugs. Because you were never tested or shown a panel, a piece of paper 
that shows you exactly what chemical is out of imbalance and what is the low end and the high end, below which and above which gets you into trouble. Big Pharma, as we call it, who are critics of this whole model, has you as a patient. They have you as a, 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 an individual who is part of a market, and they want you on it forever and ever and ever. And I will tell you, I've never met anyone who really got back to a meaningful life by drinking too much, smoking too much dope, taking cocaine incessantly. You can do it a little at a time. It can be recreational. I do believe that. We shouldn't be putting people into jail and ruining their lives because they smoke some pot. We used to do it in the 1920s when, when, when the do-gooders, when the religious fanatics made the alcohol the devil's drink right? and people went to jail and people killed each other over making and selling spirits. Right? A little is okay in my value system. The same is true of these drugs. To say you're going to live your life better and fulfill your dreams without knowing exactly what you're taking is based on a lie. And in most cases, it ends up like this woman writing a lament, a public lament that for 20 years she has not gotten on with her life. Millions of people are bringing their children into this process. Kid can't sit still in school, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and we have a pill for that. A pill that if I sold it on the street, I can get 25 years to life because it's an exempt narcotic. Causes all manner of brain injury, not as a side effect, but as a direct effect. If your doctor tells you that the reason your kid can't sit still is a chemical imbalance, say, I want to see the evidence. And I want the evidence shown to me, shown to me, the scientific evidence that this drug he's taking actually in effect on a post-test of this drug test, of a blood test, that it has brought the offending chemical that causes the imbalance, or is, represents the imbalance, into a balance. I don't know if anybody sees this as making sense. If you do, you have to defend yourself against this and your children. A couple of weeks ago, I did a wonderful show. Uh, uh, my guest was a, a, a retired uh, professional, Sue Parry, and we discussed this for nearly an hour and how her children fell into this maw, this grinding nonsense, and how she ultimately, after a lot of suffering and soul-searching, got them out of it and now advocates for a very different way for people to behave. And I recommend you listen to that show. It's a few weeks ago. 
I called it, it was the story of ADHD and the diseasing of American children. We're all being diseased by things that aren't real diseases. Now, let me start and make a list of things. I don't think I'm going to discuss them today. Things that if you examine your own life story, and it requires a bit of philosophical insight and a bit of patience on your part. And I really do hope some of you will buy the book that you see listed in, in the description of my show, Psychotherapy in Quotes. Therapy is in quotes. Because when I talk to somebody or anybody talks to somebody, and it's discussion and, and, and questioning and relating stories that provides real answers to some of the traps, the psychological traps we get into, that we can then end up being diagnosed with a disease and being told we have to take a drug for the rest of our life that causes havoc in our life. And very rarely, maybe it does sometimes, allow us to fulfill the dreams of our youth and find a happy, moral, successful way of living our lives. So, things you have to know. One, I've covered the myth of mental illness. Two, is the ju- difference between judgments and descriptions. We have to judge the world and everybody in it as good or bad, positive or negative. We have the COVID virus. It's judged bad because it impedes life and kills people, makes them very sick. But the judgment of something doesn't tell you what it's about. How does the virus come about? In what way does it make you sick? What should we do to cure it? That requires science. It requires not judgment, but description, detailed description. And one of the things that most people do, and I'm going to not really go into this at length, but you could read my book and listen to my other shows, is that we judge someone. And when, So let me back up a second. When we describe what somebody did, John stabbed his wife 50 times with a knife and she's dead. That's a description. It's what he did. We don't know why he did it, but we can judge it. He did a very bad thing. He did a criminal act. He should be in jail. The problem is that judgment says it's wrong, but it doesn't show us why John did it, what went on between him and his wife. We don't want the description and the understanding of why John did this to say, well, now we understand it, so we forgive it. That's a problem that can occur. But we want to understand why people take a knife and kill their wives or their wives kill their husbands. <clears throat> and sometimes when we really go through a description of the relationship, we begin to understand it. But when we judge behavior, they're moral judgments. We do not say that the virus is wicked. Some people might say that. But the virus is not motivated. It's not to be held responsible for what it does. It just does it. You see? So all of the 
things called mental illness are judgments of behavior. And if we judge a behavior and it is not a medical problem, that is, it's not of the product of some real chemical imbalance, something that could be shown, then it's a moral judgment. And that's all it can be. So there must be an understanding of how your story confuses moral judgments with, with, with uh, um, descriptions. Because judgments don't explain why. Only understanding explains why. And when we say you're sick, now there's nothing to be explained. Why are you see the world in such a terrifying way that you can't get out of bed? Why do you feel hopeless? Why do you, what has happened to produce that view of yourself and the world? So I'm going to talk more about that another time. But you can read about it. Or you can listen in my other shows. Right. Next is the, an understanding of the difference between what we are as a human being and what we do. And that takes a little bit of a discussion, and I'm just going to introduce the topic. Most of us use the word I to begin a sentence about something we're going to do. Right. I looked, I saw, I walked, I spoke, I remembered what we are is really what we do, but we experience ourselves as having substance. We think of ourselves and experience ourselves as a noun. But it's all really based on some process that we really don't understand, based upon what we actually do. And if you could separate what you are, the judgments about what you are, and see them as judgments about what you do, you're in a very different place. It is one thing to say, I am sick. I am a sick person. I am a schizophrenic. Or, I am evil. Or, I am a loser. Or, I'm stupid. And another thing, to go into the situations that got you judged or have you judge yourself for what you could or couldn't do or did do or didn't do. Okay. A child reports, uh, he gets caught masturbating. I had a patient. That was, what a story that was. He was caught by his mother masturbating, who was always somehow looking out for why, what he was doing. Okay. He wasn't supposed to masturbate. In fact, in her religious view, and I don't want to step on anybody's religious toes, the very act of having sexual feelings was a sin. God was watching, and she was going to watch for God. And she found, when he was a teenager, a magazine that he used, Playboy magazine. I remember when that came out. Woo, woo! It was wonderful. Gorgeous, gorgeous women without their clothes on. She brought it to the school he went to, Catholic school. Brought it into the classroom with the head priest. He was beaten with the magazine and humiliated in front of the rest of the class. He was then made as a punishment to kneel, I had never heard this one before, to kneel on rice till his knees bled. Can we imagine the outcome of this? 
one has to be able to understand that one's feelings are one's feelings and make judgments about what we do. We can't be told now we're an incurable sinner, that God hates us. We're despicable in our very essence because now we're trapped. Not much differently than being told you're sick for the same behaviors you're being judged by in another situation. But what I do, I can do differently. Hide the magazine better. Next, related to this, there's a difference between what we wish for and what we actually do. Wishes don't make things happen. And one of the traps that people get into is the fact that when we are young children, we think very different logic than when we're an adult, if in those areas of life we have managed to develop the new logic. And I don't want to imply that there's anything morally wrong or sick about somebody who still thinks in certain areas of life that they're still in the way they are a child. But it leads to very different consequences of behavior. And so one of the things that people need to learn is the difference between a judgment and a description, the difference between thinking and feeling and actually doing. Freud believed that I'm with him. We should never judge ourselves for what we think or what we feel, but judge ourselves for what we do. And if we keep it that way, what we do to hurt others, we can ask for forgiveness, we can change the behavior, or we could find new relationships where people don't do those things to us. But we have to know that difference. Okay? What do I want to come out of this lecture? And it is a lecture, in a way. What do I want you to learn from reading my book and other books that are critical? Although I really like how I've written, and I'm really redoing it to make it even stronger. I want you, if you're going to seek professional help, to absolutely refuse to be diagnosed. Now, here's a rub on this. One of the reasons there was such an enormous expansion in psychotherapy and the people who do it was because of the expansion of health insurance. If there ever was a bargain with the devil, it was health insurance reimbursing part or all of the fees of people who did psychotherapy because it absolutely required a diagnosis. Otherwise, why would health insurance pay for it? <clears throat> I'm going to get a lot of therapists angry, but health insurance shouldn't pay for it because these are not illnesses. They're moral and intellectual problems. That's what they are. When you hate yourself, you're morally judging yourself. And we have so many ways in which you can morally judge yourself and think of it as a sickness. I'm going to discontinue the show at this point. I like so far how it's gone. I will set up a sequel to this and go through these other things. 
But in order to be an educated consumer, and one of the ways I want to rewrite my book is as an actual consumer's guide in some ways. Well, I can't write a little pamphlet. My colleague and friend Chuck Ruby said he started out to write his book as a pamphlet and ended up at 380 pages. Uh, My book is under 200 pages. I'm going to add maybe 10 or 15 pages because I want when people read this book or listen to this broadcast and they walk in to seek help for themselves or their children to recognize that if they are judged as having a sickness, there better be proof it's a real one. And therefore, a psychologist, a social worker, and in most cases, a psychiatrist is not the one to treat them. I don't have my psychiatrist, a psychiatrist, treat my high blood pressure. I I have a cardiologist treat it. I I don't have a doctor (coughs) give me a, a, a shot, a vaccine, if he's a social worker, a psychologist, or a psychiatrist. I have a GP that does that or a doctor in infectious diseases. <clears throat> and I'm starting to get some reflux, and I stupidly didn't have some water. <clears throat> so, here, here it, we end. You must be an educated consumer, or you will drag your child into labels now being used by teachers, guidance counselors, It is the lingua franca of our society. It is a religion, a secular religion, that's probably the most powerful and successful secular religion ever created. It is rotting out the society, and it leads to so many lives being stolen because the individual can't stand up and say, if I'm sick, I want to see the right kind of doctor. And if I'm going to talk to somebody about my problems, I don't want to be morally judged with a judgment that is moral but pretends to be some kind of medical problem. I think I made that clear. There will be more of this in the future. I'm going to turn on the news, and hopefully I won't be too depressed by what I hear and see on the news. Uh, Another expose uh, about our beloved president, who had 38 hours of tapes made of him with uh, uh, the same reporter who brought down Richard Nixon (laughs) nearly 50 years ago. Incredible, incredible. We'll see what happens with that. But when you're dealing with religious ideology, uh, it's very hard for it to change. All right, ladies and gentlemen, whoever heard this, I hope the show will be heard by many others. I hope you will tell your friends about this. I hope you'll tell your friends about my book. I really want it read. I didn't write it like my other books, which are just as good or better to sit where they are in the underground bookcases of universities all over the country, not being read, which makes them not good for me and not good for the reader. An unread book is not particularly terrific, just like an unused bar of soap 
or an uneaten dinner doesn't help anybody. Goodbye, good night, good luck, and I will return with chapter two of how the false stories of mental illness and mental health can steer your life. Goodbye.